Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Basil Dahiat. Basil is the CEO of Monrovia, California-based Zencore. He's been on a true long run. Basil co-founded Zencore in 1997 after getting his PhD in chemistry at Caltech. He's been through a few ups and downs in the biotech markets and taken the company through a near-death experience and a couple significant strategic shifts. The company is known for its work on engineering monoclonal antibody drugs and engineered cytokine therapies. Few people may realize it, but the monoclonal antibody Citrovimab, developed by Veer Biotechnology and GSK as a broadly neutralizing antibody that still works against the Omicron variant of SARS-CoV-2, was made with the help from the antibody engineers at Zencore. Antibody engineering has come a long way over the past 20 years. These treatments are crucial to the present and future of medicine. Basel has seen the evolution of this treatment modality at close range for his entire career. Zencore is now aspiring to make a difference for its partners and also to develop a few drugs of its own. This is a really fun, freewheeling conversation with an entrepreneur who's been through and continues to experience a true long run. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of the long run, AnswerThink. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit AnswerThink.com Timmerman and get a copy of the ebook Top 3 Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's AnswerThink.com Timmerman. Now please join me and Basil Dahiat on the long run. Basil Dahiat, welcome to the long run. Thanks, Luke. Pleasure to be here. So, Basil, I, I have to admit that uh, I, I look back in my own archive. Sometimes I forget the things that I write years ago. And um, I found you in a column about the best boring companies of biotech in 2016. And it was actually a compliment. And, you know, I can almost see the gears turning. It was sort of the genesis of the, the beginning of my thoughts on the long run podcast. And, and how, so you kind of epitomize one of these long run stories. So I've, I was asking myself, well, why did it take me so long <laughs> to actually have you as a guest on the show? Yeah, I've, uh, I've um, shocks my, myself sometimes how long I've been working in biotech. I mean, it reaches back, I realized, to the Clinton administration. And, um, you know, that's that's a lot of water under the bridge, but it's amazing to see just how large the industry's gotten, how many faces and names and even places there are now that didn't exist back then. So it's been it's been a real fun ride. Well, so I, I got 
a lot to cover here. You, you really do, like I say, epitomize one of these long run entrepreneurial stories there at Zencore. Um, so can we start off like um, where were, where did you grow up? I grew up in Northern Virginia, actually inside the Washington, D.C. Beltway, the proverbial Beltway. You know, um, went to school in Fairfax County Public Schools, which were terrific schools and had a pretty average American childhood, Little League, Cub Scouts, high school, all that. Yeah. Though my uh -huh. parents immigrated here from Jordan shortly before I was born. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a, a second generation. Ameri I'm born in America, but, you know, my family definitely had that uh, immigrant, immigrant stamp on it. And what did they do? Were they in science? No, not at all. Not even remotely. They came to the U.S. Uh, because my dad was a graduate student, actually in comparative literature. And um, apparently comparative literature is not something you directly jump into as a job. And so he actually got a job as a broadcaster. Um, he worked at the Voice of America for his whole career and um, was a producer and writer and reporter for the Voice of America, which is the U.S. government's international broadcasting and news organization. And so that's what he did. Okay. And my well, mom so taught he... Arabic at the State Department to diplomats. Oh, wow. Okay. So did you learn both languages? I did. And then I went to college and that started the steady decay of my ability to speak Arabic to where it is now. And I can pretty much order food at a restaurant and ask where the bathroom is. <laughs> but now you speak science. So you, you did pick up another language. <laughs> yeah, it all got crowded out. It all got crowded out. So how did you get uh, the bug for science as a kid? I've, I've always wanted to be a scientist or an engineer since the earliest I can ever remember. It's just been a given in my mind and pretty much everybody who knew me's mind. Um, I remember one of my earliest memories is watching a, a NASA space mission, the Apollo Soyuz docking, must have been 74, 75, you know, on that black and white TV sitting in the living room um, and thinking, yeah, that's science, uh, that's astronomy. I'm going to be a scientist one day. And then I remember reading about a company called Genentech doing genetic engineering when I was in high school. And that steered me more towards thinking biomedical things. This is revolutionary technology. They're talking about changing the world. And so I went to college at Johns Hopkins doing biomedical engineering and have started working in a lab um, end of my freshman year. Uh, so that's, it's felt like I've been there ever since. So were you drawn like to the, to the lab early on, like you, um, in a, in a yes. practical way, you, you weren't one of these that just like wanted to memorize out of the textbook or oh, no. ace the test? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. I mean, I definitely worked hard in my classes, but I wanted to get into the lab and start doing real science as soon as I could. And I, I literally just started talking to my professor who was assigned as my advisor. I said, I really like chemistry and engineering. And he says, great, you can start in my lab in May, right? When you finish your finals. And I did. That was 1998, no, 1988. Sorry. Um, and, you know, I still remember my first day in the lab. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, you must have done pretty well. You, you go to Caltech for graduate school. How did that yes. come to be? You know, I was looking to jump a little bit out of this biomedical engineering box, it seemed like at the time. 
um, where in my mind at that point, biomedical engineering was like a handful of things. You either built instruments like, you know, like EKGs and MRIs, or you, um, you synthesized biomaterials, um, or you studied how joints and moved or how the, the heart, you know, how the heart, uh, mechanical stresses on the heart work. And I said, I want to go a little bit more basic and, and, than that. And then I also said, I want to go someplace warm. And not completely being facetious about that, but really the big driver for me to go to Caltech was it's small. And I remember loving that Johns Hopkins, it wasn't overwhelming in size, but you got to know all the professors walking around the lab. It was very much, a, you know, you, we're all scientists in this together, very competitive and intense. And Caltech had that same vibe from what I'd heard. I visited it and I said, yeah, this will be great. And I still live in Pasadena. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, and, and you, did you settle on chemistry early? Cause you had mentioned that Genentech was in the news and, and, you know, you were looking at biomedical engineering, but how did this come back to, you know, <laughs> antibody engineering? And yeah. So, years? so when I was at, at, at Hopkins as an undergrad, I, I did love chemistry, but it was in the, embedded in this context of engineering. And so I was working in a lab that synthesized polymers to make them into biomaterials, degradable polymers, drug delivery work, things like that. And so that was chemistry as a tool. And I liked it. I liked thinking about chemicals and molecules, though that of course naturally bled into molecular biology. So when I got to Caltech, the coolest thing I saw happening wasn't even really happening. I joined the lab of a professor that had just arrived, didn't even have a lab yet, was looking at how to design proteins looking at the chemical structure of amino acids and how you could piece them together, how you could generate an amino acid sequence that would do a job, right? Still, by the way, a, a grand ambition today, 30 years later, but that, that drew me in as a, a bit of engineering and mathematics, practical understanding of chemistry and using those tools and being in the lab, rolling your sleeves up, making molecules, putting them in an NMR, putting them in into some kind of spectrophotometer and understanding them and then and then working on that on that together. So it 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 was chemistry, but at Caltech, chemistry meant a huge span of things. They didn't really limit you. In fact, the lab I worked in was in the biology division, but nobody cared. That was Caltech. Yeah, yeah. You could cross disciplines. Um, and, and as you say, it's a small place. So you, you oh, hear yeah. about like what's going on down the hall and how you might be Absolutely. useful. Absolutely. And I, and I realized something years and years later that was really in common between my lab at Caltech and my lab at Hopkins that I worked in. In both cases, it was for young, incredibly bright, energetic faculty who's, who were really doing bleeding edge new ideas. And sometimes they failed, sometimes they weren't. But in both cases, they really left you on your own. Even as an undergrad at Hopkins, I was mostly given a general push and he'd check in occasionally. And at Caltech, it was very much the same way in a brand new lab where we were literally ordering equipment and he was running around doing his professor stuff and writing grants. And he's like, well, I guess we got to get an HPLC, figure one out, right? And so I realized I was used to being in an environment and I, I selected environments where there was really no guardrails and you just got to kind of muddle your way through and pick up the phone and and make stuff happen. Right. And I liked that. I realized. 
Boy, this culture really takes me back to the reporting on my hood book. I've got to say, like that culture of Caltech, that sink or swim, uh, the big audacious idea, and you know, giving the the students a lot of independence. Um, oh yeah, oh yeah. To, to oh, yeah. How's it going, out. kid? How's it going? <laughs> oh yeah, you know, there's one of those instruments over in uh, over in Kirkoff. You should go ask him to see what they say. Bye. And you go figure it out. Or, yeah, you know, you want to do this kind of reaction. I think they do it over in that group. And you ask a bunch of grad students, what's that piece of glassware? Do I, do I got to buy one? You know, and it, it, it fit me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you're, um, this is the 90s now. And I think you, you, you finish up the PhD in about 97. Yep. Um, so I, I happen to know that 97 was an was a important year in antibodies uh, with the oh, yes. FDA approval of rituxan, uh, a real watershed event. Was that uh, looming large in your mind? Like, okay, antibodies are, you know, are drugs and antibodies are for real now? Not at all. In fact, precisely the opposite. In 1997, antibodies were a bad word in generally in the pharmaceutical and biotech industries. They had been a bust. Mouse antibodies had gone nowhere. They were all immunogenic. There'd been some humanized antibodies. They didn't end up being big drugs. Everybody at the time thought rituxan was going to be a little tiny drug, right? Antibodies were absolutely uninteresting to people in 97. So when we started the company, we were thinking about engineering cytokines. The successful drugs were Nupagen and Epigen, GCSF and erythropoietin and there were going to be interferons and there were going to be interleukins and that's where you should go, kid. And so we started working on those guys and in a completely, for the first several years, academically driven, utterly blissfully unaware, I would say, of what really patients needed and what pharmaceutical companies might want. But that was a lot more common in 1997 than it is now. Okay, well, let's back up though. Um, you, you get your PhD from Caltech. You're you're in your what mid twenties now. Yep, and you decide yep. to start a company. How did that oh, yeah. happen? Well, my advisor uh, Stephen Mayo had been involved in a software startup, did computational chemistry software in the eighties when he was a student, and he had been involved in that throughout his postdoc, and then that company had gotten bought and acquired and moved on. And he said, "We we got a great cool technology here. We had." we had figured out ways to write computer programs that would help us pick amino acid sequences that, that were novel and that could take on new structures and that could um, maybe, maybe, and we hadn't done this yet, do new functions. This is powerful. This biotech industry has just taken off. Look what Amgen's worth with these two proteins. Maybe we could make new ones or better ones. And that was literally the extent of our scientific diligence. We can make cool new sequences there's companies like Amgen, and there's all these new companies popping up. I mean, names like um, Synergen and Regeneron, you know, some of which you hear about still, some of which you don't. And so that, that seemed exciting to me. It was like, I want to do practical things. I'm an engineer. I want to get out there and make things. I don't want to go do a postdoc. And, you know, the work I had been involved in at Caltech had gone really well. You know, Steve had gotten tenure and Howard Hughes uh, appointment. And we'd gotten really high profile publications. So I could have tried to go down the academic track, but it just seemed kind of, I don't know, drab to me for whatever reason. And that's silly because you can have incredibly exciting careers there. But I just, something else seemed more fun. And at the same time, I'd gotten a call from a recruiter saying, hey, would you like to work at Amgen in a lab doing, you know, protein 
derivatization and pegylation and cool stuff like that. Your background fits. So I went and interviewed there and I got a job offer um, and I still have some of the paperwork, but it seemed way more interesting to try to start this company. And through completely blind luck, a friend of mine had started a diagnostics company looking at DNA uh, transfer of electrons a few years before. And he ran into me on campus and said, oh, you should meet my investors. They're coming to town in a few weeks. You can say you have something interesting. They'd love to hear about it. That was it. Okay. Okay. So you did have um, a plan B, a fallback plan. You knew you could get a job if this thing doesn't work out. But Pretty we- much. Pretty much. And I didn't have um, kids. I, didn't, I wasn't married. I didn't have an apartment. Caltech stopped paying me. And they literally kicked me out of the lab. They were like, you cannot do anything company related on campus. You need to leave now. <laughs> okay. So, you know, there's, there's risk, uh, like with any new venture, you're also not like a, a known name. Like you're not a faculty oh, God, guy no. or you're not HHMI or any of this stuff. Uh, so like, how did you, um, raise that first money? That was based, I think on the, the reputation of Caltech, the high profile work that we had done engineering novel protein sequences, a field protein design that was just nascent back then. And we demonstrated a really cool but important proof of concept. And then the field has grown a lot since then. It's really led now and has been for a number of years by you know David Baker up there in Seattle with you at UW. Um, but it's the same tools that before David started working on them, we and some other labs, in fact, my chief scientific officer here at Zencore, John Desjardins, was one of my main competitors. Um, how to use computational tools to pick sequences. And so that, that meshing of computers and tech with biotech was really exciting to some investors. Now, that said, I wasn't like, you know, getting the biggest names in the world. We had this one, it was a family office. He was a young fellow from Chicago. His dad had founded their company, their family business, which was stock trading. And he was in that business and he was looking for ways to manage portfolio of exciting technology companies. And they'd invested in a little bit of tech. And they stumbled across my friend at uh, Caltech, who had um, been in Scientific American with this cool DNA detection technology. He invested, the company was moving forward. He thought, wow, these young Caltech guys, they've got energy. And also, I think he liked investing in guys his age. And so we really connected and we hit it off the vision of creating new intellectual property and new proteins you know, trying to, trying, to, trying to be disruptive. People were using the word disruptive even back then. It hasn't changed. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. And I think so, that was key. And then I also met with a, a venture capital group, traditional venture capitalists, and there was nowhere near the level of, of scientific experience or industry. I mean, the industry had only been around 10 years. So met with them and talked to them through a professor at Caltech. Being at a good place like Caltech that has connections helps you, by the way. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was important. And just decided to take the plunge. And honestly, he was crazy for investing in this. And how much did you raise in that first round? So we, we took down a million and a half dollars. And we had um, sort of uh, tranched commitments for up to five million that never materialized. Because first thing we did was realize, oh, we're not going to hit our first milestones of getting, getting protein design contracts for this wonderful computational output with companies we'd been talking to like Novo Nordisk and Genentech and Lilly, the only people doing biologics at that point in time, right? And Amgen, um, we're going to actually have to make molecules and build a lab. Oops, our whole business plan just go, let's just trash it. 
So we renegotiated. We, we got in another million bucks right there. And so for two and a half million and found a little lab in the east side of Pass. It wasn't even a lab. It was just some converted rooms in a warehouse of an electrical supply company that had sinks and stuff. And the big thing we'd bought with a million and a half bucks was a supercomputer, 32 processor, Silicon graphics, Unix machine that, you know, became obsolete within two years, obviously. And uh, two refrigerators side by side had to push them. Well, you had the license for, for this technology from Caltech. Yes. So yes. You, you're working from the beginning on um, FC domain. Modern, no, not no? at all. No, not at all. We were just doing protein engineering. And in fact, we started working on cytokines. Like I said, let's make a better nucleotide. How do you make nucleotide better? Let's make it last longer. Where we realized quickly, whoa, our tools can make it more stable, but how does that translate into lasting longer? Uh-oh. So we started working on industrial enzymes and ag chemical traits. Got our first contracts with Genencore, which is now gone, or um, a company called Syngenta, which was Novartis Ag and Seed, or Dow Chemical. Engineering enzymes for them due to chemical transformations, whatever it took to pay the bills, or to convince investors that we had something somebody wanted, because we didn't fully pay our bills of those. And um, the biggest event that happened early on in the company was a hugely lucky thing called dot-com bubble, where money just flowed into tech and into biotech as well in quantities unfathomable six months later or earlier. And we set out to raise $15 million based on some you know, validation from these contracts with Dow and Syngenta, some early work showing we were hitting our milestones. And we thought, 15 million, let's be ambitious and let's go get it. And in two months, we had $50 million people wanted to throw in. It was crazy. Oh, my God, that is such a great story. And, you know, that reminds me as well of, you know, when I was getting started here in Seattle, I, I got to know uh, Clay Segal at Seattle Genetics, now CJ. Good friend of mine. He, he has a story about this very same time getting that company started, antibodies for cancer, antibody drug conjugates. And he ran into all kinds of investors who said, you know, Clay, we really kind of like it, but we, we could invest if you were seattlegenetics.com. Then we might invest. <laughs> but this antibody stuff, we're, who cares? The computer angle helped us a lot. The computer design angle helped us a ton. And it was crazy. And I realized it was crazy at the time. And I'm like, wow, we're getting way ahead of ourselves on valuation. But boy, what can we do with this money? And that was what changed everything for us. We raised the $50 million. And was it a financial, in many ways, albatross for us for a number of years, catching up to the valuation, doing a down round later? Yes. But that money let us invest in real labs. It let us convince people who were experienced and smart about biotech and drug development to join our company where they wouldn't before with only a few million bucks in the bank. That changed everything because now we were able to make practical operations and some kind of view on what our markets, right? The pharma companies, patients might need with our awesome technology. Okay, now at this point, some listeners are probably wondering, like, you're a young guy and you just got a ton of money and your business doesn't really have the whole focus yet. It's very easy to just run out and buy a sports car and blow all this money, and like, end of story. Like, you know, but yet you didn't do that. Um, you, you, what, what was your thinking about that money and how you were going to invest it for the long term? It was, oh, my God we got to figure out what to do with this or we're going to be, you know, how I cannot fail raising this much money. That is unacceptable. And also there was a strong element of, I have no idea what to do with it in terms of 
what are actually really important nails we can hit with this amazing technology hammer we've got? And we didn't start working on antibodies until two years after that in 2002. And by that time, antibodies had just hit the zeitgeist as, whoa, this can be the next big thing. The rituxan approval, nobody noticed. In fact, everybody was still thinking Reapro was a disaster, but then Remicade pumps along, and then Herceptin. And then everybody looks at Umira on the horizon. It got approved in what, 02 or 03. And suddenly it's like, whoa, everybody's got to do antibodies. Suddenly companies like PDL were making money. That was the humanization company that, that started that all. Um, Metarex and Abgenix, the humanized my, mouse companies, both of which got acquired. Metarex resulted in all these amazing molecules like nivolumab and ipilimumab. And so suddenly antibodies were great. And we thought, what can we do? You could already humanize them. They've already got these amazing mice. But wait, the bottom of the antibodies untouched, the FC demand. And there's some cool papers about this. And we stumbled across that opportunity because we interviewed a fellow for a job who said, God, you know, you do this really cool protein design on these proteins. Guy across the hall from me at Rockefeller is trying to do that for FC domains, but I bet you you could do a way better job with your, your approach. Now, why were, we F, why were FC domains interesting? Because they, at that point, had become very clear over the prior eight or nine years that they controlled how antibodies engage as part of the immune system with the rest of the immune system. That's where immune cells bind to antibodies, like natural killer cells, like, um, like macrophages. That's how B cells understand and recognize that, that there's antigen being bound by whatever receptor they've got. Um, it's also why antibodies have such an amazingly long half-life, why they, when they work, they're phenomenal pharmaceutical agents. In fact, that link, FC binding to its receptor FCRN to give it this, this rescue from being chewed up by your normal metabolic processes, that biology mostly was sorted out right here in Pasadena at Caltech in the lab of Pamela Bjorkman. So it, it all made sense. And we said, whoa, we got to work on this. And projects that work usually start working fast. And that's what happened here. We're like, whoa, we're engineering things that are not in the literature and the patents. Wow, they're sticking to these receptors really tight. Whoa, they're killing tumor cells way more potently. I think this works. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And so, and you had something different. Like you said, there were other yes. people out there working on that humanization problem. You know, you weren't getting that kind of mouse DNA rejection anymore. So antibodies yep. were, were coming along on that yep. parameter, but there was still this kind of wide open area with optimizing them for, yep. for affinity, potency, half-life. There were things you could do. Yep. And it lent us an interesting business model. The FC domain is constant, right? All these different antibodies, IgG1 antibodies you have, have the same FC domain, right? And it just stays there as a scaffold and it helps them recycle and it helps them engage the immune system. So that means if we make an FC domain that has longer half-life, we just make the best one we can make. The fewest mutations, you want to be parsimonious and stay close to nature when nature's already done something good maintains biophysical stability and ease of manufacture and formulation, um, you know, uses relatively conservative mutations to avoid the hypothetical risk of immunogenicity, which by the way, was a real bugaboo back in the early 2000s. Now people design proteins like crazy and nobody worries about it because it turns out it's not as big a crisis as everybody had worried. Um, people were still hung over from mouse antibodies. And so 
once you design it once, you can just use it again and again. And we license the same exact FC domain narrowly focused to a particular use against a particular target or for a particular antibody to many, many, many companies. And suddenly we had leverage. We licensed the same high ADCC or high cytotoxic killing antibody or FC domain to, I think, five companies in the space of two years after we had discovered it. And we literally didn't do any additional work. It was like a software license. That really, really let us start reducing our burn rate, convincing investors we had something there. And then we just doubled down and kept looking at everything we could do with FC domains and antibodies generally. We became an antibody company. And you're still private at this time, um, but you're beginning to get some revenue. Uh, There's the beginning of 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 a business model. I mean, were you thinking that licensing out of technologies would be your business, or were you thinking like someday we will become a drug company? Like it was always, it was always a way to pay the bills, keep the doors open until we can make our own drugs. And in fact, we did our first IND in two thousand and seven. Our first antibody um, got into the clinic. It was called XMAP twenty five thirteen. And it targeted CD30, and we were going to use it in Hodgkin lymphoma. And we got really promising results. The first dozen patients in dose escalation, a couple of responses, super well tolerated, great antibody. And right at that time, we discovered competition. And a company a little bit ahead of us, right there in Seattle, Seattle Genetics, had a drug a couple of years ahead of us that was an antibody drug conjugate with great data in Hodgkin lymphoma, kind of slammed the door shut. Now, in retrospect, it probably didn't. But as a really, really poorly funded private company that wasn't super confident in its own abilities, we decided to halt development instead of churning on and trying to be, you know, the, the molecule behind and try to catch up. Probably a mistake in retrospect. Now, that was the CD30 directed antibody, Correct. Now, now marketed as Edcetris. Correct. That was Cetrus 35, now Edcetris. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, tremendous drug has helped an enormous number of people, but that was a blow. And right around that same time, uh, another massive financial tsunami hit called the Great Recession. Today's sponsor, AnswerThink, has been consistently recognized by SAP, one of the largest enterprise software companies, as a top business partner for delivering and implementing SAP solutions for small and mid-sized life science companies. Their SAP certified solutions designed for the life science industry are pre-configured, rapidly deployable, and address fundamental business and IT challenges, such as integrating your business applications, delivering validated reporting, increasing your speed to market, support for global rollouts, as well as delivering a fully compliant solution that meets FDA's strict standards. Explore how AnswerThink can streamline your business processes to ensure growth. Visit answerthink.com slash Timmerman and get a copy of the ebook, Top Three Barriers to Growth for Life Science Organizations. That's answerthink.com slash Timmerman. People forget it, but it was really dark. I don't forget it. It was horrible, Luke. We had to do a large layoff, got down to about 25 people. Uh, there was a lot of talk at the company around hiring a new CEO amongst some of our board members, the, the VC board members, hire a new CEO and sell the bits off, right? And we got saved by a little bit of licensing business, honestly, and then did a, a small inside round convertible debt, raised $7 million, then another $7 million, 
and then brought in 25 million in upfront payments from a couple of deals around some really cool molecules we made. One in phase one, that's the, now the drug Mongeviet Morphosis that we had to license out or we would have gone bust. We were six, you know, classic story. We were six weeks of burn left, three payrolls, and then we were out of money and we were done. Um, and then we signed the deal. I remember, you know, I remember Saturday morning getting the facts the CEO's signature, giving him a call. Hey, it's great. We're super excited. That's and a, did, it's an approved drug. And by this point, you didn't have those royalties from those earlier deals or, or you didn't yet. have that roster of partners who were kind of mitigating your burn. It was like- We had some, but the deals back then were smaller for us. Small companies with few financial resources can't strike big deals. You don't have any leverage. And the other, other side knows it. They're smart. Mm-hmm. The last of those small deals we did was with Alexion in 2013, early 2013, which was the year we went public in that, that December. And it was to make a long half-life version of Soliris with RFC domain. And it worked beautifully. That drug is now called Ultimiris. And all we did was license them the use of that FC and they popped it in and they did you know, a little bit of engineering and off they go. It's a great drug. Every two months they dose it. But now Ultimiris, that didn't get approved until what? Two years 2019. ago? 2019. So like you weren't generating cash off of that either. At least they paid us maybe. 3 million up front. They paid us 3 million up front for the rights to that, which we had to do what we had to do because we had very little money at the time. And nine months later, we did that deal in February of 2013. Nine months later, we, we finally got our uh, IPO done. And when we got the IPO done, we had three and a half million dollars in the bank. So that said, the deal was a good deal. Boy, you were really scraping along there. And that was a good case of timing because 2013 is right around when the biotech market started to open up. Um, Boy, you know, I wish I could agree with you that it was good timing. It seemed like terrible timing at the time because 2013, the markets opened up for the first time in forever that spring and summer. And we say, oh my God, we have to try to go public because by that point, we had another molecule in the clinic. You know, Morphosis was moving along. Um, we had a, a number of more deals and I talked to some investors and some bankers and said, you can do this. Raced as hard as we could to try to get out in November. And right then the window closed. Now, remember, there'd been no window for four years. We thought, that's it. <laughs> Biotech had its day in the sun. It's over again. And um, we tried to price our deal right as the market was slamming shut. There were four deals that wanted to price the week we tried in November of 2013. One of them got out at a 40% discount. The other three just didn't happen. We held a deal together. We had some really good investors on the public side that saw the vision, you know, were willing to, willing to wait it out and say, look, if you can gather up enough money to fill this financing, this $80 million target, we're going to lead it. But you got to be able to gather up. We're not doing a partial deal. We don't, we don't build peers. We build bridges, right? So took three weeks. Over the Thanksgiving holidays, I was in the backyard a lot on my cell phone, and we priced the deal the uh, Monday after Thanksgiving holiday weekend. It's really interesting. Here you use that term window. People used to use that a lot. Like it will open and then it will close. And now it's because it used to think of the past, right? Because now it's like always open. It's It's always open open now, (laughs) but it wasn't always that way. The scale of our it used to be. Oh, you want to go see the biotech investors who go buy IPOs? Yeah, there's 10 of them. Right. You talk to 10 guys, you could do it in a day in New York. (laughs) But then there aren't another 10. That's another another way of looking at it, right? There aren't another 10. And so, but for us getting public, though it was a a bumpy start, 
utterly changed our lives, utterly changed the story. Now we could access capital and really try to develop drugs instead of constantly just trying to feed ourselves hand to mouth. And honestly, when I think back on it, the reason why we were hand to mouth for so long was because of the way we started. We didn't know anybody, our lead investor, John Stafford and I, it, it was every relationship we have was, was just clawed together over years and years of knocking on doors and going to conferences and handing out business cards. And that set us back so many years. You know, having network and relationships is, is what drives business. And we didn't have that. And that's why it took us 16 years to go public. We, we, were, we didn't have the right relationships or opportunities until very close to us going public. 16 years, no drugs of your own on the market, um, you know, not profitable, um, or no. a, long, a long way from it. But you did have a couple of people, a couple of groups that really did understand their antibodies in Alexion and Morphosis. Um, oh, and, and we had, yeah, lots of other deals. Now, a lot of those didn't go anywhere because drug development's hard. A lot of great molecules don't see the light of day, right? Now, what else was happening uh, technologically uh, in these years here, kind of the early 2010s? Oh, boy. This is, this is like by specifics and ADCs. I remember this specifically. These yeah, things are starting a, to become real. Yeah, it was such a cool, there's such a cool chronology there. So antibodies turned real in the early 2000s. Suddenly they're not immunogenic and there's people making antibodies like crazy. And then the first wave of, of innovation that came after that was, let's make alternative scaffolds to antibodies. They're like antibodies, but better because they're smaller, which, by the way, never turned out to actually be an advantage. It's just a difference. Antibody fragments, people would call them. Fragments or alternative domains. And there was a handful of these companies that, that came about. That was the first wave. And, and pharma's bought some of them. And most of them didn't go anywhere. You have a few success stories like the Ablinks and the Lucky Partners of the World. And then the next wave after that, ADCs were, were clawing their way forward after a lot of challenges and failures. And you got the drug approvals from Immunogen and Seattle Genetics. And right at that time, we were developing our high ADCC, so FC domain that recruits immune cells better technology. And we thought this is going to be great. We have our CD30, we have our CD19, we have several others. And suddenly the two ADCs worked. And suddenly what we were doing was no longer of much interest and everybody wanted to do drug conjugates. This was 2009 or so, eight, seven, eight, nine. And then there were no more antibody drug conjugates that were successful for another almost decade because they hit the tough part of the technology innovation cycle, right? And then by specific antibodies, a little company called Micromet had a, a glimmer of success with a very challenging molecular design they'd had. Tough, tough drug and pharmaceutical entity, but great biology, bi-specific antibodies. And around 2009, when we saw the ADCs kind of sweeping us you know, into the less interesting bucket, we couldn't raise money or get money, maybe 2010, we said, whoa, if we could figure out how to make good drugs out of these bi-specifics, good molecules, that would be amazing. We make molecules. We're the FC guys. We're the antibody guys. Let's start working on that. And there were some historical precedents of people that had tried, not gotten very far, mostly at Genentech. And of course, right as we're doing that, companies like Chugai and Genentech and Regeneron, we didn't know. And there were groups at Pfizer and there were groups at Merck and there were groups in Canada, you know, starting to work on how do you make 
bispecific antibodies that act and look and behave like antibodies. Then the floodgates will open. We ground away at that for three years. What was that first one from Micromet aimed at? It was aimed at B-cell lymphoma, non-Hodgkin lymphoma, and ALL. It was called, now it's called uh, Blincido. It's sold by Amgen. Oh, okay. Amgen Micromet in 2012. So that was CD19 directed? Correct. Plus, what, what was the other? Was it? CD3 on T-cells. Yes. So it bridged CD19 okay. and CD3. Great biology. Okay, so that um, that they were ahead of the curve on that one. Um, they were the now, curve. What, what were the the key challenges with bispecifics in those days? I remember there were challenges manufacturing them, purifying them. Like that was else? the start of it. Then there was a tremendous challenge where because they had broken off chunks of the antibody structure and didn't have the FC domain, their half life was extraordinarily short—a few hours instead of weeks. And that was a huge one. And so they had to deliver it with infusion pumps, right? Dribble it in a little bit. And the other piece was because of the way the structure was assembled, they just stitched together a domain from this antibody, domain from this antibody and stitched them together, you know, with a little peptide linker. That created a molecule that when it brings together the tumor cell and the T cell from your immune system, it really seems to do something that jams them together in a way that makes it an incredibly potent interaction and it's very hard to control. So there's a lot of toxicity from that. And so the way they managed that was to dribble it in really slow with this infusion pump and use the short half-life as an advantage. We all knew that if biospecifics were limited to that kind of approach, they would never go anywhere. That's not a practical way to deliver a drug. It is not. It is not. And so all these companies started chipping away at it. How to make FC domains do the job. And we built our little intellectual property for it, and so did some other folks. And around 2012, 13, we started talking about it, but it wasn't part of our IPO roadshow at all, by the way. It was too much under the surface. So what were you trying to do? You were trying to make the FC that sort of um, calmed it down a bit? No, you make the FC FC like a a Lego building block so that you could could have a chunk of antibody on one 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 FC half a chunk from a different antibody on a different FC half. And those guys, you could just express in a mammalian cell, like a Cho cell manufacturing cell line. And the trick is you now want to make that FC so that it assembles in just the way you want, where you've got the left half and the right half, but you don't get two left feet, right? You don't want to have the wrong things paired together. And then you want that to come together and be super duper stable. So you can put it in bottles and ship it around the world. And you want it to get cranked out in large quantities so you can, you know, rent a bioreactor at some CDMO and make kilos of it. And you want it to last in the circulation for days and weeks, right? Which means you've got to do everything that the FC does and just not mess it up while you have this cool zipping up. That's, that's, that's the goal. That was the, and it was clear that if you could do that, wow, there'd be something. And a, bu- and a bunch of people converged at the same time to basically the same place. You guys showed that you could do this. Like your technology oh, yes. was useful at this. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. In 2013, 14, really. Again, it wasn't part of our IPO roadshow. It was too nascent. It was just like, oh, you've got a molecule you're about to put in the clinic. You have partners in the clinic. Raise the money and go. But again, the people who really knew antibody engineering knew that this was important. And so oh, yes. you, you guys were starting to, uh, you know, you had some cred, <laughs> at least oh, in that yeah, world. No, we were believable. 
when we said we could do something, people believed us, right? And they, they wanted to see what it was, right? So we had built a lot of credibility as antibody engineers. Um, and, you know, we're still doing it today. But the thing that we realized then was we have to keep on pushing the edge of, of molecular engineering. And it was how many formats can we make with these by specific FC domains? Can we fuse cytokines to them? Like we just had data last week from our, our first cytokine FC fusion, our XMAP 306 collaboration with Genentech, where you know we we took the contrarian approach of saying, let's make this cytokine way less potent than nature and stick it on an FC, because too much of a good thing is not a good thing. And too much potency from a cytokine can kill you. Well, let's come back to the cytokines in a minute because, you know, here, here is, I think, part of the secret of success for some companies, and, and maybe yours is one, where, you know, hang around long enough for uh, the, the puck to move in your direction and then knowing how to whack that puck into the goal. <laughs> That's um, exactly right. You just summarized it beautifully. We learned how to be really good at antibody engineering and manipulation, and the puck moved away from us when the ADCs looked really exciting, like around 2009-10. And again, they had their challenges, and now they've been wildly successful the last few years. Um, okay, buy specific antibodies. We said, let's invest there. Keep things going in the meantime. And then the puck moved towards us in a wonderful way, 2015, 16, 17, and since then. That's exactly right. Survival trumps all in biotech. Look how long Regeneron was around trying different things before they became this wonderful antibody company. Right. And they're poised to keep doing it again and again. I think people That's can right. see that now. Um, but so the other thing that was happening here mid 2010s is like the dawn of cell therapy. So like these you know, yes. part T cell therapies directed against uh, CD19 originally and now BCMA and people are looking at other targets. But uh, that helped breathe some new life into these T-cell engaging bispecific antibodies. Well, but it also became the foil. Everybody's like, well, CAR-Ts are going to solve everything. I mean, are you guys going to have a place? And we kept saying, well, CAR-Ts are pretty challenging. And so far, there's not that many targets that work and making them and you can't ship them. And I remember you had a really great event up in San Francisco a few years back where I was on a panel with some wonderful CAR-T scientists, um, one from um, uh, up in Seattle, I can't recall which institution, I think UW, and then David, uh, David from um, uh, Allergy and Kite, David Chang. And uh, I said, well, look, you know, not all drugs are going to be CAR-Ts, right? You guys got a lot of, of challenges. That said, for a few years, the interest from the marketplace, though not interestingly, not the interest from pharmaceutical companies, the interest from the investment marketplace was focused on cell therapies and biospecifics. Well, why are you guys so slow? These car T's look at how fast these guys are moving. It's amazing. You know, and well, it's, it's turned out to be a little more challenging than they thought a lot of interesting success, but you know, we're still waiting on the second. We just had the second target get approved BCMA. Yeah. Right. Now so, so you allude to a whole lot of um, time and energy and, and, and attention directed to cell therapies. Um, and maybe bispecific antibodies uh, have been toiling in relative obscurity, um, in, at least in the market. But why, why do you believe there is a role for these uh, as as alternatives, or, or or might they even someday supplant 
um, T-cell therapies in the market. What are some of the advantages of this class? Well, the advantage of the class is that they're actually drugs. You can make them by the kilo, put them in bottles, ship them around the world. You can engineer them and manipulate them and tweak them when you realize you want to change the properties. And that engineering is very easy. We use all the tools of protein engineering we've had for, for years now. You're not groping through very challenging unknown biology, where if you try to engineer the, the genome or manipulate the genes in a, in a cell, a lot of times things that happen aren't things you intended. So there's a lot of simplicity there. And I think the other part, way I put it contextually is antibodies are the dominant class of agent in, in lymphoma, for example, right? Where the CAR-Ts play right now. And in, in myeloma, uh, antibodies and, and proteasome inhibitors, right? Not CAR-Ts, right? Rituxan dominates the lymphoma space, right? Agents that are better, more efficacious and well-tolerated and com combinable than Rituxan are going to supplant Rituxan, Right? I really see how you can already see now, starting in 2019, there was an ash where suddenly, whoa, there's all these CD20, CD3 bispecific antibodies that look pretty interesting in lymphoma. Genentech's got one. Syncor's got one. You know, Genentech's got a second. Oh my gosh, you know, Regeneron's got one. Wow. Wow. And these are easy to use and their activity is very high. And, but there were still naysayers. And now you've got multiple companies with pivotal studies looking to go not just relapse refractory, but move into frontline lymphoma with CD20, CD3s. That's going to be a hard sell for autologous cell therapies. And I would say that allogeneic cell therapies still have a lot of technology development road to go to be able to meet the, the really broad use, right? Right? It's not just third line that counts. Those earlier line patients want better options too. Lower cost, um, scale of manufacturing, um, accessibility to patients. I mean, accessibility. Accessibility is huge. You can just go in, get an infusion, go home. You don't have to have your immune cells ablated. You don't have to be admitted for days. You don't have to, you know, hope the graft holds. Right? It's just a whole different. It, it's a whole different paradigm, right? There's also antigen loss. We're beginning to see with some of the sure. cell therapies. Why, it's interesting. Um, with, it seems to happen with T cells. Even by specific CD3 antibodies, you get some antigen loss. Right? We've witnessed it. Regeneron's witnessed it. We both published it. Interestingly enough, that drug we made with morphosis Monjavi, which engages NK cells very actively, has tremendous activity. It's their, their durability of response is now out well past three years. They have a 40% CR rate in relapse and re refractory lymphoma with a well-tolerated antibody combined with a, a, a well-trodden agent Revlimid um, never shows antigen loss that's, that's really been reported. And Rituxan, of all of its many years of use, the reports of antigen loss have been very sketchy and don't seem to be of any practical importance. So different modalities can work together, right? And that's, I think, another place where the biospecific antibodies one of two places biospecific antibodies really have the future, which is you can combine them with other drugs, right? Right now, the pivotal studies undergoing are combining those biospecifics with chemo, combining them with IMIDs, combining them with checkpoint inhibitors, combining them with other antibodies. We're about to start a phase two combining that Monjuvi CD19 antibody that kills with NK cells with our CD20 biospecific that kills with T cells, right? All those different mechanisms you can apply you're not stuck with this one cell, hoping that it can do everything to everyone. And then the other big thing I want to say about biospecifics is 
There's three approved biospecifics right now in the United States. Hemolibra, which is a agent for hemophilia, right? The, the drug, and I can't recall the name, but it's an EGFR met biospecific antibody for lung cancer that, that just got approved for Janssen. Again, no CD3, no T cells, just cool biology with a biospecific. And of course, Blincito, which mm-hmm. is smack dab. So the realm of things you can do with antibodies and biospecific antibodies are just antibodies, or even if you will, therapeutic proteins, it's all of therapeutics. Well, so, and a lot of a lot of diseases are multifactorial. There's multiple antigens. So like if you lose one, all of them. Uh, it's good to have a, a second that your drug works all on. All of them are. All, all of them are. All of them are. So, so biospecific antibodies are not a T-cell modality. They're not an oncology modality. They're just proteins, right? And I mean, that's why we just jammed cytokines onto our biospecifics when it made sense to mate that cytokine up with, say, a receptor fragment of its own or to target it, right? Okay. Now let's come back to the cytokines because you mentioned that earlier. That's kind of where you started in the very beginning. And then it is, know, but, but now it's come back, right? There's IL-2 yeah. like from way back when, like this was supposed to be a cancer treatment, this inflammatory cytokine and it was too toxic. It didn't work or it worked for a few patients, but it was awfully hard to tolerate. Now there's a whole wave of companies trying to come up with, you know, engineering of IL-2. Yeah. Um, to, to, you know, get that tumor killing potency by dialing down the, the off target. You're one of them. Um, why, We're what's, doing it. what's exciting? What do you think is going to happen here in the next few years? I think that protein engineering tools that have advanced over the last couple of decades, people started thinking five, six years ago, I want to apply this to cytokines. What's, what can we do now to overcome the limits on cytokines? Cytokines evolved to be brilliantly potent molecules. They evolved to act for a really short amount of time in a really short space, one cell to the next, poof. Okay, now we know what to do, right? They were not designed to signal throughout the body in an endocrine fashion. They're super toxic. You can't do that. So now that people have fiddled around with protein engineering, they say, wow, what can I do with cytokines? And so they start doing things like pegylating them to make them last longer. Now, of course, pegylation almost always reduces the potency of the thing you're pegylating. Not always, almost always, right? Um, they start engineering them for selectivity. Our approach was just, let's just engineer it to be a hell of a lot less potent, right? You have something that, that can, that in the picogram level can light up every T cell in the flask and make it go crazy. Why don't we knock it down three, 400 fold until it's barely working? That's kind of counterintuitive because usually you're trying to make the cancer drug more potent. They're usually not potent enough to kill the cancer. It, it, was our, it was our scientific team's idea. And by the way, where it came from was it flowed out of what happened with why are all these bispecific antibodies that target T cells all over the place now? Because it's not just lymphoma. There's bispecifics that engage CD3 for cancer all over the place now in oncology and development. So what we all noticed when we were making these things look more like antibodies so they could last longer is, gosh, they're a heck of a lot less potent than the equivalently engineered original format, the so-called bite, where you just fuse these things close together. Something about being in a big IDG where the arms are floppy. Everybody draws an antibody like a Y, but it's like a Y that's all floppy and hingy. It's moving all over the place, right? It's just a lot less potent. Then people said, going even a step beyond that. Let's dial it even down even further. Let's make it lower affinity to CD3 to the T cell. Wow, it gets more tolerable. 
and you still get killing. Is it going to be enough? Let's try in the clinic. And people are realizing that. We said, cytokines are the same way. They're just too hot. But if you could make them last really long time, that's sort of, you know, tortoise in the hair. The tortoise doesn't go crazy and light up the immune system in a way that's toxic. That's the goal at least, right? And our initial data last week with our XMAP 306 IL-15, which is basically the cousin of IL-2, tries to do the same things, um, I think starts to show that that hypothesis might be real, right? We're getting generally quite good tolerability and remarkable amplification of natural killer cells, you know, 40 to 100 fold above baseline levels. And we started to see some responses. So maybe this thing's got legs. It is totally counterintuitive, but it makes sense. Well, so this is where we get into kind of the two-edged sword. Like you, you've hung around long enough to for, for the market to smile upon you. For um, you know, you, you've raised a lot of cash. You've done a lot of partnerships. Uh, you, you got two hundred employees now. You're in a strong place. Uh, but you also look at the landscape, and there's you know, it's really crowded and really competitive. Oh, yeah. So how do you decide where to like really? you know, apply your firepower. That's, that's the hardest thing that we have to do because man, the world moves so much faster than it used to. There's so much more competition because there's so much more money in the space. The research enterprise is very active in this country and boy, investors are going to chase any opportunity they've got. You know, we're trying to go to where, where we think the puck is going to be, but typically when you do that, somebody else is aiming in the same place, Right. And so the, the approach we take is one where we think we can get a lot of leverage by if we have a general scientific approach that we can iterate on, nobody makes molecules that are robust and well-behaved faster and better than Zencore. That's what I believe. So we started working on IL-15, which we thought was just a naturally more selective cousin to IL-2. Why start with something that's already got problems when at least you can eliminate one of the problems, the selectivity to um, to the cytotoxic cells. So if that idea has some legs initially in the lab, do it for a bunch of things. Okay, not just IL-2 for oncology. We've got, or IL-15, IL-2 for oncology. We've got an IL-2 steered towards regulatory T-cells like our competitors Amgen and Merck and, and Roche to, to maybe be using autoimmune disease and other cytokine angle. We've got an IL-12 that's coming. It should be in the clinic next year, XNAP-662, IL-12, makes the, the immune synapse highly immunogenic. doesn't grow a lot of NK and T cells, but they get a lot more active at dumping out interferon gamma and being cytotoxic. We're trying that one out. We've got an IL-18 behind it. Once we had this idea, wow, making it lower potency really seems to work awesome preclinically, do a bunch, right? right? We're not big by scale, but we're fast. And you still have a lot of partners. So you have some, you know, uh, of that revenue that, you know, from you got right, some royalty revenue coming in and, and you got some partnership revenue, but you're really trying to build up a pipeline here of your own wholly owned programs. I mean, you want that's, to become a fully integrated company, right? That's the goal. Well, why do you want to do that? Company. Because I think that's the best way to have, have your technology have the broadest and biggest impact. Right. If you have the vision for what you think a technology can do, you can you can be as innovative and risky. You know, you're going to be much more innovative and risky than a potential partner is always going to be a little hesitant paying somebody money to take a risk with it. 
and you can try to push the envelope, right? And, 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 and that sort of scale, if you can ever get to the point where you can get fully integrated, you can really blow it out. I mean, I'm always driven by what is the most amazing innovative science we can do and how do we make drugs from it, right? And I, and I, I model companies that I admire deeply for their technical and, and continued innovation investment, like, like Regeneron, like Alnylam, like Seattle Genetics, right? Those, those guys never stop trying to make awesome new molecules. Well, and they built up the commercial side. They weren't content right. to stay this crack team of 200 or 300 R&D people and just no. license out everything once it gets to phase two. They took the risk. They took the risk. And that, you know, that is because I think if you believe you can create technology that might be bleeding edge, the best way to have it see the light of day, to give it a chance to make a big leap in new medicines you've got to do it yourself. It's, it's a lot harder. Most deals are at least to some extent incremental, not all, right? But most. So that's just, I, I think that's just how the, the, most, um, the most intense innovative leaps are going to happen. What do you think the world doesn't fully appreciate about what's happened in antibody engineering? Do, do you think we're going to just have like... <laughs> a huge wave of new antibodies uh, and bispecifics and ADCs 10 years from now? Oh, yes. I don't think the world appreciates that these are going to be bedrock parts of the class of a bedrock class of drugs that's going to permeate all. It's going to grow out of oncology and autoimmune disease, right? It's going to be intermeshed with so many other therapies. I think gene therapy has made amazing strides and it's going to have impacts. I think gene editing and base editing is going to really play an important role. And I think, think cell therapies are going to be very, very important. I think antibodies are going to be in the mix and used with them, combined with them. I think there's going to be modalities. I mean, we've already got antibodies and small molecules combined with ADCs, right? But that's generation 1.0, right? There's all sorts of exciting these small molecule mechanisms of action that are being uncovered, right? Nucleic acids, people are already starting to mesh them together with antibodies and proteins. I think we're just at the beginning of how we can make different molecular structures that are going to do new stuff. And I think the, the hardest part is the biology now. We're, we're pretty good engineers already, but man, we're still, we're still all in kindergarten when it comes to biology in this industry. Well, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying out this thesis on you, Basel, but, you know, it's sort of like, I, I think that figuring out the right tool for the task sometimes takes some time. And it's not, oh, yeah. it's, it's, it's often, it's rarely the first thing out of the box. So, totally agree. You, you know, like Intellia had this big in vivo editing announcement over the summer and people said, wow, but, you know, there actually is a, an RNA interference molecule already for that target. So, sure. I mean, is this really the, the right use case for in vivo editing? Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but in vivo editing is going to have a future. Yes. Yes. Uh, right? And and I think antibodies, you know, what's old Are is going to be happen. new again uh, in, in oh, lots of absolutely. different indications. Absolutely. And look, you know, we had that wave of antibodies that popped out, you know, Umira and Enbrel, and and then there was a, a dry spell there for a good decade where not much new really popped until the PD-1s showed up, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we kept talking of NGF was going to be the next big one. PCSK9s were going to be the next big one, you know? Like you said, the, the good use cases creep up on you. You just got to keep plugging. Well, I think that's a great 
place to end here, Basel. Keep plugging. <laughs> Thanks for joining Keep me plugging. on the long run. Thank you so much, Luke. Take care. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.